Please open to Luke chapter 13. Let you get settled in. This is, this is a tough passage. It's not tough to understand. It's tough to apply. Not tough to understand. Tough to apply. But if we come on Sunday and hear the word of God and make no application, we've failed to do what we need to do as Christians. The Word of God should bring change in our life. Amen? Amen. So I'll help you with the application, but it's difficult. It's very difficult, the application. And we'll be talking about legalism and why it's so difficult to make application anytime you hear a sermon on legalism is because it is it's good to keep the law it's good to have boundaries in our life it's good to have rules but it's bad to turn those rules into the basis for our salvation it's bad to turn our keeping of the rules into a source of pride it's bad to keep the keeping of laws as some kind of mechanism for making us feel better than other people and eventually runaway legalism will harden your heart and make you spiritually blind to the things that God really wants you to be focused on. Whenever you read a passage about legalism in the Bible, because it's such an obvious, blatant form of legalism, you're tempted to say, oh, those Pharisees, I can't believe them, they're at it again, how could they? And you have to remember, they didn't start out that way. Now, I would say because we have a sin nature, we all come into the world with a seed of legalism in our heart. The natural man leans towards legalism. The natural man doesn't want a savior, Because the natural man doesn't want to admit he's wrong. So it takes a work of God in our heart to admit we need a Savior. So that seed of legalism is in everybody's heart. And what I want to help you with today is that help you to see the things that cause legalism to flourish. And we don't want it to flourish. We want to snuff it out, we want to choke it out, not give it any, any life. And through narrative, through stories in the Bible, we can see legalism in other people's hearts, and that can help us understand legalism and how to avoid it. But the difficulty will be in helping you to sort through when am I being legalistic and when am I like authentically wanting to keep the law in a good way? And what do we do when we see others that aren't keeping the law so that we don't turn into the people who go around as the police, the spiritual police? And yet at the same time, doesn't the Bible tell us if your brother's in sin to go to him? And so there's, there's this balancing act, there, this tension, we like to say. And we don't like tension. Anyone here like tension? I don't like tension. You, and 
the human heart wants to resolve tension. And whenever you have two things in theological tension, sometimes resolving the tension is the wrong thing to do. You'll either swing the pendulum too far one way or too far the other. So too far one way we call legalism. Legalism is using a system of laws to establish your own righteousness. So uh, in the primary sense, people are legalistic when it comes to their salvation. I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven because I've done good things. That's legalism. I've kept the law. Okay, We know that's wrong as Christians, right? That's wrong. We're justified through faith in Christ. His sacrifice on the cross... He lived the perfect life. He kept the law that we could not keep. And we understand that, but what ends up happening as Christians is that legalism creeps into our sanctification. And certainly, the more you have a heart to obey God's laws, the more you'll progress in your sanctification, but you always have to be on guard for the legalism that says that As long as I do X, Y, and Z, I am a more mature Christian. And next thing you know, instead of heartfelt prayer before God, I did my one hour of prayer today. So the very things that God's put in our life as gifts that we call the means of grace, the things he's put in our life that help us get sanctified and grow in Christ's likeness, can very easily turn into check the box, I'm a better person, I'm a better Christian. And where that ends up leading is to the place where you believe you have leverage over other people to control their lives. To control their lives. Since... I am more sanctified and more mature and more holy. I have the right then to control other people. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, elders, they wanted to have control over others. So much so that it blinded them to their actual task as shepherds. Shepherding is different than controlling Parenting is shepherding, not controlling. Now, when your kids are really little, you have to exert control for their own safety. Otherwise, they'll run out in the street. But by the time they're 18, if you're still trying to control them, oh, good luck. Good luck. Either they can't wait to get out from under your influence, which is sad because you want to be an influence in your children's lives for the rest of their life in a, in a healthy way. Or your kids seem obedient, but on the inside they can't wait to get out of the house. And then you see those kids who you're like, what happened? That was like the neatest, most law-abiding kid we ever knew in the church. And now, you know, he's Hugh Hefner reincarnate. Nobody starts out a out-of-control legalist. You get groomed that way. Some of you grew up in, in families where you knew your parents were only 
pleased with you if you towed the line and kept certain rules. And little by little, over time, because you didn't experience a lot of grace in your home, you now think that that's how you must relate to God. As long as I do X, Y, and Z, God's happy with me and he loves me. And I am doing X, Y, and Z. So God has to love me. And you're not doing X, Y, and Z. The heart of a legalist. The opposite of legalism we call antinomianism. That's kind of a fancy theological term. Anti, against, nomian, namas, law, against the law. So people who are openly kind of rebellious... But we know we can't do that as Christians, so what we do is we say, I'm free in Christ. I don't have to keep all those laws. You're like, well, you don't, you can't be saved by keeping those laws. The antinomian drags justification by faith into their sanctification, and they say, and I don't have to keep the laws to be sanctified either. And you're like, no, I think you're just run amok. You're just letting your flesh control you. So this is where this teaching always gets difficult. Well, I don't want to be a legalist, but I don't want to be an antinomian. Should I be a little of both? No, you should be neither. There's a way to view the law of God in such a way that it becomes the thing God intended it it to be in our life. So, let's look at some people who became legalistic. And remember, this comes on the heel of Jesus' teaching on repentance. On repentance. And legalists don't think they have anything to repent from. Which is scary. If you get to the place in your life where you're like, well, I'll repent as soon as I have something to repent of. That attitude right there is what you need to repent of. And that's what the legalist misses. Okay, number one, you need to repent of your self-righteous pride. You can honestly say, hey, that person is doing a good job keeping the law of God. There are, are mature Christians, and those are the ones that we would want in leadership positions. So it would be foolish to say, look, none of us are good at keeping the law of God. That, that's foolishness. You don't place people in spiritual leadership who are blatantly um, disobeying the law of God. But at the same time, you wouldn't want someone in leadership who's so convinced that they keep the law of God perfectly that they don't see the more um, hidden sins. What's that Tim Keller book, The Respectable Sins? That's Jerry Bridges. Thank you. Interactive. uh, Thanks. Um, When Jesus says to the Pharisees, yeah, you tithe on your mint and your dill and your cumin, but when it comes to things like compassion... And love and justice, where's your, where's your legalism now? And again, folks don't get this bad overnight. It's a slow creep. 
And you don't realize it's happening to you until one day you're that man or you're that woman. And legalism reeks. It stinks. People don't want to be around it. And so we have to be on guard as individuals, as couples, as families, as a church. Now, let me say at the outset what legalism is not because we live in a culture that tends to um, celebrate rebellion. We call it individuality. and We live in a postmodern culture. I think we're now moving out of the postmodern phase. Postmodernism said there is no absolute truth. But we all figured out you can't actually live that way. But postmodernism tore down all of the Judeo-Christian foundations and something has to replace it now. And so the spirit of postmodernism says I can replace truth with whatever I want to replace it with. So I think we're living in a culture now that says yeah, we need truth. We realize it was folly to say there's no truth. But they're not going back to the old truths. And so what we're going to see a lot of is people saying Oh, look at those people over there with their traditional values. And they're going to call you legalistic. And we see how harsh of a rebuke Jesus gave the Pharisees for being legalistic. And the last thing any of us want to be uh, accused of is legalism. And so we have to be on guard for that too. Our fear of man may be like, well... Maybe we shouldn't be uh, so diligent in keeping this certain rule or this law because we don't want to be accused of legalism. No, we, we need to go to the Word of God and say, shall we fear man or should we sh- fear God? The fear, fear God. Now, there's a way to keep God's law in such a way that you communicate humility and Only by the grace of God am I able even to pursue keeping these laws. You also ought to be on guard for the fact that our pride is so insidious that we'll start taking pride in how well we keep the law. You may have been struggling with something and now you're you're doing really good in that area of your sanctification and one day you wake up and you hear this attitude in your heart that says well look at me you know I'm a better Christian than those people over there who can't get their act together in this area of their life and when that happens I would hope that the Holy Spirit is he's convicting you I would hope you're listening and that you go ooh whoa where did that come from you know when you see that stack of Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes you packed, there is a good feelings God gives us. That is a good thing. You've done a good thing. You should get to enjoy those good feelings. A sense of being obedient to Christ and, and who knows how God's going to use these boxes and how many lives it's going to impact. And then all of a sudden it crosses over into, and I did 50 and they only did 40. And you're like, whoa, where did that come from? said, we all have that 
heart of legalism we have to be on guard for. Once we've convinced ourselves that we are good people in the legalistic sense, then we feel the right to judge others and, and to exert control over others. And so the whole thrust of this passage I'm about to read to you is about people who wanted to have control and it was rooted and grounded in their legalism and Jesus is going to expose them and teach them that you can't control the kingdom of God. It's God's kingdom. He's in control of it. You can't control the kingdom of God. You can't control when people are getting saved. You can't control how they respond to their salvation. You can't control what people think. You can show them what to think. You can teach them what to think. But you can't make them. You might say, I want our church to look like X, Y, and Z. But God's bringing a different kind of people. Maybe they're tattooed or have piercings or... And they're praising Jesus. And you're like, oh, I just wish they wouldn't praise Jesus with the piercing. And, oh my goodness, they're praising. Look at the authentic worship we're seeing. And you're all caught up on. Hmm. And when it was you, the generation before you, it was because, I don't know, you wore a hat in church or I, Every generation has their things that they say that should not be allowed. And then you miss out on the wonderful things God's doing. Now, at the same time, though, let's be careful not to fall into the crowd that says, um, takes this the other direction. And anything being done in the name of the Lord is allowable because that must be an authentic work of the Spirit. And the stranger it looks, the more authentic it is. Yeah, well, let's read 1 Corinthians. God expects a certain amount of order in his church. Read the New Testament epistles. There's certain doctrine we must adhere to. There's church structure and leadership we're supposed to follow. So at this point, some of you might say, well, well which is it? <laughs> That's why you need a lot of grace and humility and patience as you're working through these issues. It's why the Bible says don't appoint a new believer as an elder. It, take, it takes time to work these things out and wisdom and experience. Oh, I've seen this before. This reminds me of when this happened in the church and we're going to proceed with caution in this area. Perhaps a young woman comes in and she's dressed in a way that we would all say probably needs to cover up a little more. But is that the first thing you tell her when she walks through the doors? Someone says no, but maybe the second thing. <laughs> Hello, would you like a sweater? <laughs> Maybe you maybe you ought to stop and, and, and find out who this person is and why they're here and 
make them feel welcome. All right, so let me just read the passage through, Luke 13, 10 to 20. This is the word of God. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years, let that sink in, 18 years. My daughter will turn 18 next month. Uh, You know, that's her lifetime. 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double. So she was, had to walk like this. I mean, that's just how everyone knew her. They probably didn't even really know what her face looked like. Bent double. And we don't get the woman's name here, and we don't get a lot of details. Bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant, Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed. Wow. There's just no way this guy started out like this. That is extremely ugly. Can't believe it came out of his mouth, but he was preaching it. It was his synagogue. He was a synagogue official. Come back and get healed. You've waited 18 years, but today's not the day. She's healed. A miracle's been done. She's glorifying God, and this guy is perturbed. He's indignant. He is angry. He's lost control of his synagogue. He believes God has been offended because work was done on the Sabbath and in his synagogue of all places. But what if word gets out? (laughs) I hope it does. Jesus miraculously healed a woman who had been bent double for 18 years. Headline. That's the kind of good press we would want. But for this guy, this was bad press. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham. She's one of us, one of our own. Someone you're supposed to love and take care of as a shepherd of Israel. Whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? I mean, it's supposed to be a day of rest and worship. This lady finally got rest. And she was worshiping. And the legalists were missing it. We're missing it. 
Someone else had an ailment that day. Spiritual blindness. And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. And these two parables are attached to this narrative. And they don't really seem to fit. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his own garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. And if you have a Bible like mine, the birds of the air nested in its branches is in all caps. Which lets you know it's a quote from the Old Testament. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Jesus speaking in riddles again. Remember, he spoke in parables not to be more clear, but to hide truth from those who didn't want the truth. For those who wanted truth, they would go to him and ask for an explanation, and he would often give the explanation of the parable. But... Speaking in parables was a judgment against those who had blinded themselves spiritually. Fine, you didn't want to listen when Jesus taught with absolute clarity. Then I'll now teach in parables and riddles as a form of judgment. So those two parables just don't seem connected to the event, but they are. I'll give you a little hint at what they mean. He's trying to tell them that the kingdom of God can't be controlled. Like you throw a mustard seed and boom, it just grows. And we've got a cousin of the mustard plant here (laughs) that we can't control. It's what keeps all our young men employed in the spring, weed whacking. It's just going to come right back. You can't control it. You can only hope to contain it. Not even that. And like yeast in, in the bread, it just spreads. You don't see it spreading, you don't see it working, but it's working. In other places, Jesus called false teaching leaven, but in this case, it's a, the leaven's a good thing. It's not false teaching. He's saying the kingdom of God is like the yeast. You don't see it working, and it starts out really small, and it seems insignificant, but it's going to affect the entire dough. So let me start out by telling you uh, what, what this passage is not about. It is not about casting out demons. Every time we've come to a passage about demons, I've said that's what it's not about. And you might think, well, that's because he's afraid to teach on demons or something. So no, you'd miss the whole point of the passage. And notice in this passage, we don't hear anything about the demon. He doesn't say anything to the demon. We don't know how the demonic influence caused the illness. If you have a physical ailment today, I wouldn't be concerned that you have a hidden demon that's causing it. Though it would also be wrong for me to say that that never is the case, because here is a case. 
But that's not what the thrust of the passage is about. It's not a passage teaching us about what our theology of demons should be. The woman was sick. And she was healed publicly. And people who should have been excited were not excited. Because something was happening that was out of their control. We'll determine what happens on the Sabbath. Thank you very much. See, there's a difference. We, we decide ahead of time as a church what Sunday worship's going to be like, what songs we're going to sing, who's going to read the scripture, what scriptures, what passage we're going to be on. And these are all right and normal and good. But I have no control over how people respond to the word of God. If someone was so overwhelmed with joy during worship that they started dancing in the aisle, I'll admit I would be slightly uncomfortable. I've been in church services where that's the norm, though, so it wouldn't freak me out. I've spent time in charismatic churches before. And I would think to that passage when David danced before the ark and his wife scolded him. And I said, I'm not going to be quick to scold. Now, maybe if on Sunday after Sunday this person was dancing in such a way that all the attention was being drawn to them, we would pull them aside discreetly and say, I know you want to worship the Lord, but based on some things we've heard you say, you're here to demonstrate the true way to worship in front of all of us. And you would say, I think your heart's in the wrong place. If you want to dance before the Lord, that's fine, but you don't come up in front of everyone week after week to show us all what true worship looks like. Someone who has a heart to really worship the Lord would not want to draw attention to themselves. They want Christ to be the focus. So you see, you see the difference. So we're not going to make a rule that says you can't dance during worship. Do we need a rule? During the great, uh, Second Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards would make sure that he did not preach in such a way that would stir up emotionalism. So he would not try to stir up the emotions through manipulation. And people were swooning in the back of the church, which for a Puritan <laughs> worship service is certainly out of the ordinary. But he said... If that's a work of the Spirit, then I'm not going to interfere. So he would just keep preaching. But he never said, look, unless you act that way, you're not saved. So there, there's the balance. And the swooning happened at the back of the church so as not to distract from the people listening to the message at the front of the church. Some people teach from this passage that this is proof that a believer might be physically sick due to a hidden demon. And they say that the term daughter of Abraham was a term for a believer. That's not at all what that term means. That means she was a Jew, a full 
Jew. She wasn't Samaritan, so she wasn't half Jew. She wasn't Gentile. Jesus' point was, hey, you'll work on the Sabbath to take care of your donkey or ox, but you won't lift a finger to help a daughter of Abraham? She's one of us. She's one of the people you're called to shepherd and love. How are you not excited that this person you have seen for 18 years physically crippled to be free and alive? What is wrong with you? It's it's a wake-up call. It's a public smackdown. The woman was doubled over and now she's erect. Unfortunately, the Pharisees doubled down and told the whole crowd, don't listen to this guy. You want to get healed? You come back tomorrow. You got six days you can get healed on, not on the Sabbath. This is the day to glorify God. I mean, the words are coming out of their mouth and they don't see the disconnect because that's how blind they've become. And this is the danger of legalism. You become so blind. What makes so much sense to you in the keeping of your laws, just take a time out. Maybe you're right that there's something going on that needs to be addressed. But before you jump in, just take a time out and look around and say, how come I'm the only one disturbed about this? How come I'm the only one bothered? And when legalism gets this bad, then even the legalist will say, and something's wrong with all of you that you're not concerned about this. Let me tell you. You know, you need to humbly go to a to other people, leaders of the church. Am I missing something? Is this okay? Am I the only one seeing this? And what you might hear is, yes, we know about that. We're on it in our, in our own way and in our own time. Can I pick on you for a second? <laughs> yeah, my daughter. <laughs> I just love this time that uh, we were trying to snuff out some behaviors in some of the younger children and we were doing it according to our own parental wisdom and Krista was like, are you going to do something about this? And we're like, yes, we're the parents. And she's like, are you going to parent? You know? <laughs> and one of the things that we understand is that as you grow older and you mature in Christ, the things that seem so black and white to you are like, well, maybe not so black and white. Maybe not so black and white. Yes, it's wrong, but we're handling it in a different way. I just want to make sure that you don't go home today still worried about this woman who's sick, who has a spirit. Apparently, and we know from the book of Job, that God could allow an evil spirit to come and torment someone. But it's always for God's greater purpose. That we can trust in God's goodness and in his plan that he has a purpose in it. And certainly... We know this much about this particular incident. The greater purpose was so that this woman would be in this synagogue on the day that Jesus was there so he could heal a woman in front of everyone 
to show the contrast between a heart that truly wants to praise and glorify God, the woman, and the legalistic synagogue leaders who had misinterpreted what the Bible has to say about keeping the Sabbath. And it's such a stark contrast. And nobody would doubt that this woman was sick because she's been this way for 18 years. This is no parlor trick. Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm. We don't. You can't control the spirit realm. Jesus can. So worship Jesus. Certainly this has been one of the errors that has crept into the church when the whole, you know, um, bondage breaker, Neil Anderson, became very popular like 20, 30 years ago. Christians became legalistic about spirit things. I've got to pray protection over this and protection over this and protection over this and protection over this and protection over this and... If I didn't say enough prayers before my kids left the house and something bad happened to them, that was my fault because I didn't pray against a demon of this or a demon of this. And it just left people paralyzed and in fear or the, the worst side of the coin, thinking they have more control than they really do. I'm more spiritual of a Christian because I take demons seriously and you don't. That became kind of a hallmark of evangelicalism, how spiritual... You were directly correlated to how much you were into these kinds of teachings. I don't want you going home being afraid that your ailment, and many of you, and myself included, struggling with an ongoing ailment. Praise God, mine's on the rebound, but I know many of you are have something that you deal with on a daily basis. I want you going home thinking maybe it's a spirit. There's no teaching in the New Testament epistles that tell us to look for hidden demons, to assume you might have demons and not know it. All the teaching in the New Testament epistles are about putting off the old man, putting on the new Praising God in the midst of trials. Trusting that the trials will bring perseverance and more Christ-likeness. That God is compassionate and merciful. And if it pleases Him to heal you now instantaneously, He can do that and you can pray for that with faith. But if it doesn't happen, it's not because you don't have enough faith. It takes even more faith to trust God when He doesn't heal right away. I know people with great faith who have struggled with a chronic illness, and I say, wish I had that kind of faith. Oh, wait, how do you get that kind of faith? (laughs) Maybe I should be careful what I wish for. Daughter of Abraham is not a synonym for believer. Pentecost hasn't even happened yet. Nobody's indwelt with the Holy Spirit yet. It's just the title you gave for somebody who was of that heritage. And remember what the religious leaders were saying when John the Baptist said, you need to repent. And what did they say? Well, we don't need to repent because we're what? Sons of Abraham. 
So he's using their own language that they use as a badge of honor and say, well, what about this daughter of Abraham? Why should she be afflicted for this way in 18 years? Why should she have to wait another day to be healed? Why can't you be happy for her? Why can't you glorify God for what you just witnessed? So we can't control the spirit realm, but Jesus can. And he just tells her verbally, you're freed from your sickness. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again. We don't see anything about the, the spirit leaving her. See, that there isn't some systematic theology of demon possession here. That's not the point of the passage. Point number three, then, legalists often tried to control the Spirit of God. They said, healings shouldn't happen on the Sabbath. You can't control when God decides to heal someone. Amen? Because if you could, guess who would take the credit? The faith healers, quote-unquote. I've prayed for people. I've prayed as elders. We've anointed people with oil because it says in James to anoint with oil. I have seen miraculous healings that happen right as we prayed. And then I've seen healings happen way down the road. And it's always a cause for celebration. Glory to God. I love the stories, and we all know lots of them where the doctors go, we don't know what happened, but we can't find the cancer anymore. And the Christian doctors say, well, we know what happened. And then sometimes the healing comes through. Lots of radiation and chemotherapy and, and prayer. And God heals it in that way too and we celebrate when people are cancer free and in remission. But the, the legalist often tries to control the spirit of God. It's got to happen this way. It's got to happen my way. It's got to happen the way I've decided is the right way for things to happen. And again, look at the note. This does not mean that the church should not have sound doctrine and wise policies because the Bible commands these things. The Bible commands these things. We're not going to just have a free-for-all here. But if you disagree with the way things are being done, you come in humility and we talk it over and maybe there is a better way. Or a different way. may not be better at all, just a, just a different way. Or a way that's more comfortable to you. But we're trying to create an environment here that is accommodating to the greatest number of people. But there's rooms for you outliers as well. <laughs> You see, some people will be tempted to take this message today, twist my words, and say that organized religion is always like that synagogue official. When I first came to this church 10 years ago, I kind of, as I met people around town, I want to know what other people say about the church that I'm going to be the pastor at. 
And they always said, well, Country Oaks has, has really good teaching. Good teaching. You know, we're good. I'm glad. A church should be known for good teaching. But they always threw the word legalism in there. Like somehow every time you teach sound doctrine, you're automatically legalist. Now I could see where if you put a high emphasis on sound doctrine, you, you might lean more towards that particular proclivity to be legalistic. I wouldn't be able to serve and worship in a legalistic church. And I've been here 10 years. So I don't sense an overwhelming spirit of legalism here in the church. I think some folks who think their church isn't legalistic is legalistic about their non-legalism. It sounds funny, but it's true. It's a badge of honor that we are the non-legalistic church. I'm like, that's not a church, that's a bar, you know. That's a, that's a party in there, you know. Does anyone confront anyone with this? Is there any doctrinal purity or standards there at all? I don't even know that that could be called a New Testament church. But we're not legalistic. So you're like, well, I guess we need these laws and we need policies and we need doctrinal integrity. How do we do it without becoming legalistic? You focus on the gospel. No room for legalism in the gospel. You gut the church of the gospel and you will become either legalistic or antinomian. The gospel is the solution to everything that ails us. You're like, well, that's cliche. No, it's truth. The gospel is the answer. Nobody can become legalistic in the light of the cross because the cross tells us we're horrible at keeping the law. And even people who look good at it, they're bad at loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving their neighbor as themselves. And even on my best days when I'm keeping the law, I I don't always do it with the right motivation and attitude. Pride creeps in or some kind of attitude of this is my cross to bear I guess I better get my prayer time in today gotta talk to God you're like whoa where did that come from you know when it comes out of your mouth you're like oh that's ugly you should get to pray and want to pray and it should be your joy to pray I guess there's still sin in my heart yeah I need the gospel every minute, every second. Legalists, point number four, often resist being controlled by the Spirit of God. They were upset that this woman was glorifying God. I don't think you could could stop this woman from glorifying God. How could you not be excited for this woman? And what a perfect day to get healed on the Sabbath, the day of rest for God's people. This is the point Jesus is making here. And so then point number five, therefore, because of God's despising legalism, because it's so antithetical to the gospel, 
and because of God's love for even the legalist, he's not going to let it go unchecked. Eventually, you'll be humiliated. Even people who don't know much about what they're supposed to believe and what's right and what's wrong, no, that ain't right. You know, you're brand new to church. You've never come before. Some woman who's been paralyzed for 18 years gets healed and and the leaders get up and say, how dare you? Out. Come back tomorrow. You'd be like, I don't know much about this God thing, but I don't want any part of it. If that's what religion is, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of that. I'm going to go follow that woman. Find out what, who she's worshiping. I want a little piece of that action. <laughs> and so legalists get put to shame. The entire crowd was rejoicing. Look at that. The entire crowd. Just think how much these legalists stood out, how ugly their legalism stood out. No one's coming back to their synagogue. So how do I know if I'm falling into legalism? Well, look, look for some of these warning signs. You tend to be easily upset with other people. You have a bit of smugness, sanctimoniousness. <laughs> Mrs. Olson on Little House on the Prairie, right? The bankers in Mary Poppins. Those are the movies I know, sorry. <laughs> they want to control everyone else's behavior. They're busybodies. They're always concerned. Pastor, I'm, I'm very concerned. Pastor, why aren't the elders doing anything about this? And, and sometimes there are legitimate concerns and you come with humility and say, boy, I've been seeing this and I'm not sure what to make of it. Well, what do you think I should do about it? Well, I think you should go talk to them. That's what Matthew 18 says. But check your heart first. Confess your sins before you go. Take the log out of your own eyes so you can see clearly the speck in your brothers. The Bible has lots of things to say about how we do this dance without becoming legalistic. Is this your pet thing? Like, your job when you show up Sunday morning is to make sure everybody's hem length is the right length. Or, you know, what is your thing? Because if you've made one thing your thing, you've you're become legalistic, and now you're, not, you're missing out on all the other wonderful things that God is doing in the body. Well, I don't care if he's saving people. These hem lines have got to come down, right? Good Goodness. What's the mission of the church, people? <laughs> We're not here to clean up people's moral behavior. The gospel will do that after they get saved. So then he tells those two parables, and, and they're, they're very simple parables to understand now. Look, you can't control the kingdom. Why? Because it's happening in people's hearts. It's happening in people's hearts. We can see the outward fruit, but you don't know what's going on in a heart. Oh, you can guess. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, for sure. But the kingdom isn't about setting up, 
you know, buildings and structures and policies and rules, and do we need those things? Yes, because they kind of provide the context for the real kingdom work to be happening in people's hearts. But legalism turns the non-eternal matters into the most important matters. So that I can say I'm a good person and I don't need God's grace and I have the right to control others. It is not my job to decide what all the other churches in Tehachapi are, are teaching. I, I pray for the other pastors and some I know really well, some I don't know so well. I do want to know what they're teaching. In case someone from our church says, I want to put my kid in the youth group over there, well, make sure you know what they're teaching. Or we're leaving Country Oaks for another church. Well, do you know what they teach? Look, if you're just looking for a change of pace, we could change your ministry. Or maybe you could sit over there instead of over there. <laughs> Let's try some other things out before... But I can't control what's going on. And people sometimes will come and say, Pastor, do you know what they're doing over there? I, no, I don't. I've got way too many people to shepherd here. Pastor, so-and-so's doing it again. Is it, is it a sin issue or is it just bothering you? And why does it bother you so much? Why, why are you so fixated on this thing? You're becoming legalistic. So Jesus uses this Old Testament passage from Ezekiel. Hard to tell if he was quote, quoting Ezekiel 17.23 or 31.6. Ezekiel 17.23 is a direct reference to God bringing the captives back and building up the kingdom. And it says birds of every kind will nest under it and they will nest in the shade of its branches. Ezekiel 31.6 is actually talking about Egypt. But sometimes, as we know, the New Testament authors and Jesus himself will use the Old Testament in ways that kind of make us go, huh, Maybe that passage was talking about more than just what we thought it was talking about. The point being, you can't control the kingdom. It starts off as this little mustard seed and it's just going to explode and people are going to be drawn to the shade. And you can't control who gets drawn to the shade. Well, we want these people to be drawn to the shade, but not, not these people. I don't really like the way they dress and the... Tattoos and the piercings are, can't you be drawn to some other shade? We're preaching the gospel here. They got drawn to the shade. Let them in. Let them in. Amen. Let them in. As long as we're preaching the gospel and providing the proper shade, whoever wants to be in the shade of Jesus' bloody body on the cross, amen, let them in. I don't care what they look like. And likewise, this yeast, little seed, it's going to spread. Can't control it. 
just unleash the gospel. The world can't control it. Everywhere the world tries to control it, Christianity thrives. Isn't that interesting? China, Russia, Africa. That's where Christianity's thriving. And look, it started with 11 apostles. Not very educated, not very impressive people at all. Who would have known? Who would have thought? They needed to hear this too as encouragement. I think the three pecks might stand for Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Three is a number of wholeness in the Bible, so maybe it's just a number of wholeness, but Jesus did say in Acts that the gospel would go to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It spreads. You can't control it. Hey, they're worshiping Jesus over in this country. They can't do that. We haven't sent missionaries there yet. <laughs> you know, it's not the way it's supposed to work. Some guy had a vision. And then he went around telling everyone. And then the missionaries got there and said, Oh, that guy you saw in the vision, that's Jesus. Yeah, we know. I've been hearing those stories coming from the Middle East. Praise God. I think pioneers and the other mission agencies would be okay with that. But legalism would say that's not the way they're supposed to get saved. Time out. Slow down. Wait till we get some missionaries over there. So there's the tension. I, I hope I helped you with it this morning. We all need to be on the lookout for legalism in our hearts. I showed you some warning signs. You might be a legalist if <laughs> little things really bug you. you. might be a legalist if you don't have a lot of compassion for those struggling in the faith and not maturing at the pace that you think they should be maturing. You might be a legalist if the gospel has ceased to bring tears to your eyes. That God's amazing grace ain't so amazing anymore. There wasn't much he had to redeem me from. And you're definitely a legalist if you can't celebrate when God celebrates You can't control the kingdom, but you can and must exercise control in the kingdom. But only if you'll let the kingdom control you. We, we do need to exercise control in the kingdom. He's, he said to plant churches and to teach. And teach people to do what? Obey all that I have commanded. So you can't control the spread of the kingdom, but you can exercise control as the kingdom spreads by letting the kingdom have control over you. Amen. Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have control in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.